in terms of the interest conversion, what I mean is everybody is in it for themselves. You know, sadly, we are in quite individualistic society and there has to be a reason why I would go out of my way to care about your experience. For me to care enough about the hardship you're experiencing, the bias you're experiencing, there has to be a conversion of interest. Now, it's really clear why I don't want bias to exist, you know, and racism to exist, because I want to have a happy life. But why someone who has racial privilege, why would they care? Because their life's fine. And so that's what we need, we need interest conversion. You know, if we think about the business case, according to the research, organizations with a diversity at the top of organizations, they do 35% better. So therefore, there's an interest conversion. I need diversity at the top because actually I'll get better financial returns. This person from um, an ethically diverse background from the global majority wants more opportunities. There's a conversion of interest, but sometimes there isn't. And sometimes we have to help find that. Hi, my name is Nadia Nagamutu, business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organizational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to companies' bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organizations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organization that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace, from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier, and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of Why Care? My name is Nadia Nagamutu, and I am your host. In this episode, I am delighted to welcome Jenny Garrett, OBE. Jenny is an award-winning career coach, leadership trainer, and author of Equality versus Equity, tackling issues of race in the workplace. Together with her team, she delivers impactful development to support women and those from ethnically diverse backgrounds to progress at work, as well as supporting majority group leaders to make inclusion happen. She's also co-founder of a social enterprise, Rocking Your Teens, which connects corporates with a pipeline of future talent. In this episode, we unpack the concept of equity, and in particular, shine a light on racial inequity. We discuss colorism and other subtle intersectional characteristics that create barriers to progress. Jenny shares a shocking story of racism she's experienced, and we also delve into more intangible ways racial inequity plays out. Jenny busts the myth of meritocracy and explains how everyone can gain from equity and inclusion. Enjoy. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me on Why Care. I'm so excited to speak to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here today. 
We have several mutual colleagues, friends that we discovered, but it was the, the amazing Debbie Verdi that connected us. I'm very excited, having read your book now, to speak to you because I have to say that I thought it was an absolutely brilliant read. It was engaging. The storytelling is amazing. To be honest, this is a topic, equality versus equity, that comes up so regularly in the conversations that I have with leaders and the confusion around it and what it actually means. And it's hard to articulate in a few words, hence why you've written a book, because I thought <laughs> it needs the book. It yeah. needs the book. It's a complex topic and concept. So just by way of introduction, maybe you can share a little bit more about your background, your work in DEI, and also how you came to write Equality versus Equity. In terms of my heritage, it's from the Caribbean. My mum's from St. Lucia and my dad's from Jamaica, two Caribbean islands. But uh, they both came to the UK in their teens and I've lived in the UK all my life. As we know, people from ethnically diverse backgrounds or the global majority, as I like to call us, we are a minority in the UK. And of course, that can lead to many different thoughts and feelings from feeling excluded to feeling exoticized etc. I found myself all my life, I think, in spaces where I've been one of very few, from the Catholic school in which I was educated, to being a coach, which is not a particularly diverse field, or not visibly anyway. I think maybe I was always destined to do this work, but in truth, I think I resisted it. When I started my business, many years ago now, I think when people said to me, do you want to work with black women, for example, I would have said, no, I support everyone. I work with everyone. I didn't want to be put in a box. But as I've gone through my career, I've seen that more underrepresented groups, people who are from the global majority, actually, it's really important to make sure that they get what they need to be successful. And so this has become part of my passion and purpose. It's always been about empowering people, whoever they are, but absolutely helping the world to have conversations about race and ethnicity, which means that then they make change about around race and ethnicity. It's not just about the conversations. It's so much about the action. In terms of how I came about to write the book, I delivered a talk for an organization and amazingly in the audience was an editor from my publishing house, Emerald. They said, I love this idea of equity that you've been talking about. I think it's a book. And uh, a little bit, again, resistance. I said, oh, I don't know if I've got enough to say about it. And they said, to have a think about it, put together a little proposal and let's see. And when I started writing, I realized that everything came back to equity and they were right. And then they commissioned me to write the book and I had seven months to do it. So it was um, done pretty quickly. <laughs> How brilliant to discover that you have more to say on a topic than you thought. When you said that, it resonated with me, but you know, having written my book now, and when I had started sort of contemplating writing a book, I thought, by surely I don't have enough to say. What would be so interesting that people might want to read? Yes. A whole book <laughs> on this. And I think there is something really both rewarding and empowering in the writing process where you just discover not just that you have a voice and some real clear thoughts and opinions about the topic, but also that you can convey that in a way that's engaging and through storytelling and through examples of your own lived experience of your own life. And that's what I really loved about your book. Thank you so much. It wasn't just joyful. It was also quite painful at times. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking, 
am I going to be able to finish this? Uh, pressure. Can I fit it in? Yeah. All of those things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let's not sugarcoat it. <laughs> it's hard work for sure, but really rewarding. The title of your book is Equality Versus Equity. So it seems like the most obvious place to start is if you could just give us some clarity about what that means. What is equality versus equity? Yes. So for me, equity is about understanding and giving those from underrepresented groups what they need to achieve equal outcomes. It's not focused on the inputs, it's focused on the outputs. And how do you do it? Through considering systems that disadvantage and finding ways to overcome them. So for me, just explaining that, when we think about equity, it's about getting to know people taking an individual approach and saying, you need three training programs, maybe you don't need any. And it, with those three training programs that you get, you might then be at the position to be able to really match your other colleagues in order to go for that next role. So it's starting to understand that everyone doesn't need the same. Actually, it's a much more individualized approach, understand what people need to be successful. But it's also this thing about system. It's about understanding what gets in the way. Some systems are written down and really clear. Some are not. Accent bias is a big one. I definitely think in some organizations, at the top of organizations, there is definitely an accent bias. Yeah. And so there's an unwritten rule. If your accent isn't a certain accent, then actually it's very unlikely you'd ever get to that position. And so it's starting to surface these things. So that then we, once we're aware of them, we can change them and do something about them. Yeah. And that's the value of really understanding the distinction. Is the call then for leaders and people in general to be looking for the systemic inequities around them? Absolutely. But I think it starts at a very individual level. What I've noticed in organizations, because we run programs that are for people from uh, the global majority to help them break through the glass ceiling. And also the programs um, support their line manager and support senior sponsors. So we're working at three different levels at the same time in an organization. Ultimately, the senior sponsors have the most power to change things. And so it's about illuminating to the most senior people what could possibly lead to change. A lot of the time, they're the ones who put this in place in the first place, or what it is, is systems and processes that work for them. And so it's about helping them to see, oh gosh, this works for me. This really doesn't work for others. What can we do about that? Do we need that qualification? Or is it just because we've traditionally had someone with that qualification? Or do we need the skills or the ability to learn? Yeah, which is hugely uncomfortable, obviously, to get your head around that reality if someone is offering you some insight into a systemic inequity, it's easy just to go, oh, I don't know. I don't think that that applies here. It's so intangible often to measure the inequity. And in your book, you specifically talk about racial inequity. Yes. Although you say that obviously inequity plays out across all diversity characteristics, but you're shining a particular light on racial inequity. What is it about racial equity, inequity that people particularly struggle with? Yeah, I think there are many reasons. One of them is that you are likely to have a woman in your family. You may have someone who has a disability in your family, but a lot of people don't necessarily come into contact with people from different races and ethnicities. 
So immediately the ability to step into someone else's shoes is more challenging. And also just that sense of otherness, easy to other um, people from different backgrounds to yourself when you never come into contact with them. So I think that's one of the starting points about why it's so challenging. But I also think there's a huge stigma around being called racist. We can say sexist so much easier now, but actually saying racist and racism, no one wants to have those words banded in their direction. And I think there's such a huge amount of fear around that, that people say nothing. And there's one last point which people often say to me, which is when I was growing up, I was told never to mention having a different skin color or coming from a different background or any of that sort of thing. So now people are having to unlearn years of being told to do one thing and now to do another. And for some people that is really challenging. Yeah, it's really challenging. I do t- touch on that a little bit in my book where you know, people are just so clear that the right thing to do is not see difference, not see colour, not see gender. And they really strongly believe it's a fundamental value of theirs that if they do see colour, then they must be racist. It's rude. It's disrespectful. It's, you know, treating everyone the same is just seeing everyone the same. It's a really tough one for some people to get through if that's something they've been taught and they hold very deeply as part of their belief system. Yeah, absolutely. One of the earlier parts in your book, you talk around colorism. And I was intrigued, I was curious really about, you you say that you personally have benefited from colorism. Yeah. You say it's because of your medium brown skin and green eyes. Can you expand a little bit about what you meant by that? Yeah, it may be hard to explain in some ways, but definitely the lighter the colour of your skin in society generally, the more you're seen as beautiful, the closer you are to whiteness. And that can be the shade of your skin. It can also be about your features as well, you know, the shape of your nose or the shape of your lips or the shape of your eyes. And there's a huge amount of research about this, about the fact that the closer you are to whiteness, the more you have advantages in society white people are more comfortable with you because of the shade of your skin, your features, the way you talk, your hair. And the further away you are from that, the more it feels like you are different. And absolutely, I think that I could not say that I have not benefited because I must have done. I can't specifically say someone said, because of the shade of your skin, I'm going to invite you into this meeting. But I absolutely know it will have helped me in some ways. It would have made accessible, more appealing to people who feel that the darker skin is not appealing, less threatening, all of those things which mean that I'm more able to step in a door. To name it and talk about that really, really upsets me because my whole family, you know, is people who have a darker shade of skin to me. And that means I know that they are experiencing more barriers than I am in society. Um, even if they are more intelligent or more capable or more experienced or whatever it is, that will be a barrier. I think that helping people to become more aware of those things, if we intersect that with shade of skin and then size of body, we know that will be discriminated against, for example, and then something else, you just realize that there are so many hurdles to overcome for some people. And so subtle as well, because, you know, when we're talking about shade of skin, when we're talking about features of a face, when we're talking about size of body, when we're talking about accent, which you've already mentioned, how do we measure that inequity? 
you say you're pretty confident that other members of your family who have darker um, skin tone will have faced certain barriers, biases that you haven't faced. And that obviously, I understand why that's upsetting, but we can't measure it. Maybe you can see the sort of people who are successful in your organisation. So the people who do break through in terms of ethnicity, think about the shade of the skin colour, or maybe have they got a higher education, educated in an Oxbridge environment, which opened a different door for them. If you start to analyse and look around at who breaks through, you can sometimes see that. I'm not saying that people with darker skin can't be successful. I'm just saying that they might have to have gone through additional barriers to do so. And I think just noticing that, who are people drawn to versus who, who might have to work harder to get into the room and then prove themselves credible as well. Yeah. Another story in your book, which is one that stays with me, is one where you have faced racial discrimination. You articulate it as the worst experience of feeling excluded. And it was when you attended an evening gala. For those who haven't read your book yet, just expand a little bit on that story, because I'd love to learn a little bit more about your views on what happened there. Yeah, it was an awful experience, actually. What it was is I'd been at an event and there was a gala dinner in the evening. I was dressed up. I had a, a gown on. In my mind, there's no mistaking why I was at the dinner. I sat on a table. I sat with a group of people who I did not know. And I, I sat with them and they were all white. They started making conversation as you do, which was fine. But the person opposite me, you know, the first thing they said was, where do you go on holiday? And I am a person who loves to holiday. So I thought, oh, this is a great conversation piece. And I said, you know, I like to go everywhere. You know, I've been here, I've been there, but there's so many places I want to be in the world. And I think I was completely off guard as well. I think in some situations you are a little bit guarded and you're prepared but I think I was open and vulnerable. And this person just said, but don't you go back to your own country? So I thought that's a strange thing to say. And I said, oh, my family are from the Caribbean. I absolutely have been back to the Caribbean, but it's not the only place I'll go because there's a whole world out there. And then he proceeded to tell me that I should go back to my own country and didn't know why there were so many people uh, of my background here. And would we more, be more comfortable elsewhere? Now, that was quite offensive. Actually, I missed out the first thing that he said to me, which was, are you catering staff? <laughs> oh, gosh. When I'm sitting opposite him in a gown. He wanted to offend you. He yeah. was making a point through that. Yes. It wasn't a serious question. Yes. Well, yeah, we never know what's going on in someone's mind. But yes, it felt like that. So I had those comments and I was feeling very uncomfortable because I was thinking you're being outwardly racist to me. But the most sad thing was that there were people on the table who were squirming but didn't speak up. You know, I didn't experience allyship. I know they knew it was wrong and they felt very uncomfortable, but they didn't do yeah. anything. And I remember leaving and leaving the event early. I maybe stuck it out for a while and I just got up and um, I saw one of my colleagues who'd been sitting on another table and they said, are you okay? And I, I just said, hey, I'm fine. And the next day I told them what happened and they said, oh, we need to, you know, report them, blah, blah, blah. It was the fact that I felt vulnerable. It was very offensive directly, but also that no one, and I can tell you there were at least four people who overheard, you know, none of them did anything. That was awful. And why do you think in those circumstances, because this isn't a one-off example, or there'll be many examples similar to the one you've just shared, why are people so passive in those moments 
It's a hard one. I think sometimes I've been told by people they don't want to be ostracized themselves. So if they stand up for me, is that person going to attack them? <laughs> so there's a bit of self-preservation happening. I also think people don't have the words. They don't know what to say. And, you know, one of the biggest things I'm always asked with my talks is I want to know exactly what to say and how to say it. I think it's uh, what are the form of words that I need to use because I've never had to do this before. I don't know what they are. I think it's partly that. And I also think that one of the things that I hope more people are learning is that actually you hurt someone, you hurt everyone. You know, the fact that he was rude to me there has a an effect on everyone. They were passive bystanders in that situation. And perhaps they went home and felt a little bit bad about themselves, even though they didn't do anything. There's always a cascading thing. By hurting me, my pain is everyone's pain. And I love the way that you frame that, that from an outward appearance, it looks like the target was you. But actually, it isn't just about you. This is much broader. And as you say, it's, it, that attack, I call it an attack, um, affects so many more people. Yeah. So many more people. And in that moment, if you were to have had someone say something, what would they have said or done that could have helped in that moment? I think anything would have been okay. I think if they just said, can we move the conversation on? It could even be a distraction as opposed to, actually, I think you're being very offensive. This is, this is inappropriate. You wouldn't ask me if I go home for holidays. You don't know where I'm from. So they could have done all of that, but just this track and change would have been a good intervention, to be honest with you, or even to say, are you okay? I might have said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm, you know, I can handle this. Or I might have said, no, I'm not. But just something like that. The silence in a way says this is okay. Saying something, however small, says I acknowledge what you're going through and I'm here for you. At that point, I was younger than them as well. In chapter one, I'm going to read a little excerpt from your book now. You say, the issue is that racism is ever-present, shape-shifting and constant, and therefore takes vigilance and interest convergence for change to take place. What do you mean by racism is shape-shifting? We've all heard the term that there was no dogs, no Irish, no blacks um, on the doors when people were seeking accommodation many years ago, decades ago. Now, we don't have that obvious kind of racism generally. Even that experience I had at that gala dinner, people are not usually so obvious. Now, yes. it's much more subtle. Those microaggressions, subtle bias, who gets these stretch opportunities, who's considered talent, who's given a second chance. I've got an example for you. I was in Romania last weekend and um, I didn't see one other person who was black where I was in Romania. And as I came into the airport, I was asked so many questions uh, that my person who was accompanying me, who was not black, wasn't asked. I was asked why I was there, what the name of the venue I was visiting was, when I was leaving and I had to prove evidence that I had a ticket to leave the country. <laughs> so there was definitely something there. You know, that was in a country with very little diversity or in the area of the country I went to. And actually, if anyone's Romanian, I had the best time. I had so much love from everyone. This is just a tiny snippet of what happened at the airport. But it looks different. I think that's important. It's subtle. It's small. It's those 
tiny cuts that you receive on a daily basis that eventually get you to the point of bleeding out, you know, these little things that happen that tell you you don't belong. That, that's what I mean by shape-shifting. And that's what it looks like now. But maybe in the future, it's going to look like the AI, <laughs> you know, that we're not building bias into AI. And it's going to be, well, no one physically is being racist to me, but actually the AI is not letting me get what I need to get or it's not recognizing me. So I think it's continually shape-shifting. And that's why we have to be on the lookout and vigilant. Oh, it looks like that now. It used to look like that. It's less obvious, but it's still yes. as significant. So that's what I mean by that. And in terms of the interest conversion, what I mean is everybody is in it for themselves. You know, sadly, we are in quite individualistic society and there has to be a reason why I would go out of my way to care about your experience. You know, for me to care enough about the hardship you're experiencing, the bias you're experiencing, there has to be a conversion of interest. Now, it's really clear why I don't want bias to exist, you know, and racism to exist, because I want to have a happy life. There's personal interest there. Yes. But why someone who has racial privilege, why would they care? Because their life's fine. And so that's what we need, we need interest conversion. You know, if we think about the business case, you know, according to the research, organizations with diversity at the top of organizations, they do 35% better. So therefore, there's an interest conversion. Oh, I need diversity at the top because actually I'll get better financial returns. This person from um, an ethically diverse background from the global majority wants more opportunities. There's a conversion of interest, but sometimes there isn't. And sometimes we have to help find that. I think the killing of George Floyd was a moment where people were at home and they just realized, oh my gosh, I don't want to live in a society where someone can be killed on the street in front of everyone. That is of interest to me. And of course, it's of interest to black people for that not to happen. So it's finding the conversion of our interests. And I love that concept because in a number of conversations around this kind of zero-sum game where you win, I lose, and how we create that conversation or that mindset shift, which is what you call it, that's what's necessary, a mindset shift so that people don't feel like they're losing out, but that indeed it is within their interest too to create a world where things like being killed on the street for doing absolutely nothing, it doesn't happen. And can you talk a little bit more about that mindset shift? Because, you know, you say that equity is more than action and it is related to this mindset shift, not just from those who currently have power, but also a mindset shift for those from underrepresented racial groups as well. So you say the underrepresented racial group need to understand what to do with their new opportunities, you know, with their distributed power if they haven't had it before. And those who currently have power need to have that mindset shift to let go of the advantage that they previously had without feeling resentful. And for me, that was sort of the key three words of that sentence, without feeling resentful. So how do we create this mindset shift? Yes, I use the analogy of a seesaw and the sort of imbalance of power. That Some people are very powerful. They have the weight. Other people have less power and they're sort of high and dry. And when we start putting the sandbags on to even things up a bit, that's when we can experience some fear and some resistance. If I've always had opportunities, if uh, people have always opened the door to me, 
And now I see them opening it for someone else. I can think, well, I've lost out on something. I'm losing out. I've even had conversations with people who say to me, I'm a white man. There's a target on my back. Yeah, people have felt very much attacked by this. And so I, I think for me, it's really about being really clear on what this is. It's not saying we want to be better. In fact, you know, no one is better than anyone else. People are different to each other. It's saying we want some people to get an opportunity. And that opportunity may have always come to you. And it might not always come to you now. It might also go to someone else. And how I really think about this is to understand privilege. And I know a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that word. Yes. You can have racial privilege, just like I was talking about the privilege of the shade of my skin, actually. But also understanding that you have power in different situations. Instead of thinking about it as a burden, as a cross to bear, as something difficult, understand that you can use that power with humility. So I'm a straight woman, okay? But in spaces where I am with people from the LGBTQ plus community, in those spaces, I can really uh, show up and use my privilege because I'm not being discriminated against because of my sexual orientation. And in those spaces, I can be there for them because I won't lose anything because I don't have to talk about my sexual orientation or it's about those people who have fear, who are resistant to say, actually, gosh, you know what? I'm in a really great position. How can I share that with humility to help other people? And that is the big mind shift. It's saying, actually, I've got nothing to lose. I've got an abundance that I can share with someone else. And it's going to really help them. And when you help someone from a different background, you're often changing the course of their life and their family's life. It's um, an amazing legacy that you can leave. Number one is that you will not lose. Actually, no one has to lose. Everyone can gain. I think about it sometimes like families. I've only given birth to one child, but I know lots of people who have more than one child. And it's not that there's a finite amount of love. The love grows exponentially for the next child. It's not, oh, there was this much, you know, there was an ounce of love. Now I've got to share an ounce between two. So they get half an ounce each. No, they both get an ounce of love. Instead of thinking with this scarcity mindset, we can think there's actually an abundance that we can give. And it doesn't mean anyone loses. It means we all start to win. So that that's what I think is the mindset shift yeah, that is needed in those who typically have had power opportunities. And I think the other side, which is those who now, oh gosh, I've got an opportunity. Oh, what do I do with it? This is unusual. I think is to manage the lack of trust and fear around it. I think if you haven't had those opportunities in the past, you can think, oh my goodness, they're going to take it away at any moment. There's some cynicism and distrust there, right, with the system. Exactly, exactly. So I think that's a, a big bit, the trust. But it's also like, what happens if I make a mistake? I'm going to fall right back down where I was before. The consequences of my mistakes are going to be so much bigger than someone else's because actually everyone's watching me. Everyone's giving me this opportunity, but they're also watching to see what I do with it. So there can be a lot of pressure, a need to feel that you have to be perfect, which is none of us are perfect and it's not really possible. So those unrealistic expectations can be a real challenge as well. When we think about learning to take the opportunity and make the most of it, a terrible thing about it is that people often then think that they are the token. I've heard that so many times. If you start to believe that, that does really undermine you because you question yourself in terms of your ability. 
anyone who thinks like that, I always say, just go for it. I think that we can step into spaces and prove people wrong about us. And whatever their motivation for giving us the opportunity, it doesn't matter for me. Grab the opportunity and show that you deserve to be there. It's a tough one, I think. You know, there's a number of things you've named there, but that last one, I've had so many women in particular just saying, well, you know, the last thing I want is to be given a job as a token gesture. I want to be given an opportunity because I deserved it and for my talent and my capability. And the issue here is obviously what we're talking about is so invisible. Often these decisions are made without real clarity of what the underlying bias is or was. So I hear you that if opportunities come your way, grab them and demonstrate that you can. But it's not easy because that's another inequity that you've just named there, which is that, for example, if we're talking about a black woman, she will have that concern that she now needs to prove that she can do it and the pressure that she put upon herself as a result of that. Whereas a white woman, for example, or a white man just won't necessarily have that narrative. That's her, the black woman's lived experience, which is why she's playing that narrative over and over in her head and will be a detriment to her self-worth and her self-belief and her confidence and potentially her ability to actually perform really well and fulfill her potential in that role. What do we do with that? Yeah, I agree. The reframing that I do around that is that meritocracy is a myth. The fact that everyone wants to get a job on their merit, sadly, we know that lots of people get jobs because of who they know, not necessarily what they know. And they get opportunities and extra opportunities because of who they are. So the research tells us that men are often included on potential, women on track record. So I've got to prove myself over and over again to get the same opportunity that you got just because you have potential. And so when we fall into that argument, I need to get my role on merit. We're discarding the fact that so many people have got their role not on merit and they've got into the role and they've either proved themselves or they've not and they've had to leave the organization. And so we're setting the bar higher for ourselves than other people are setting for themselves. Again, the research says that those of us from the global majority are usually overqualified. We stay in roles too long. We're getting more and more qualifications, experience, knowledge, and we've got more than enough to step into the opportunities that come our way. Yeah. You tell a really powerful story of a boy and who obviously grows up into a man called Albert in your book. And you explain his experiences at childhood, through school, through you know, into employment, and the cumulative impact of those experiences on his self-belief, his motivation, his outlook on life. Could you just offer a very high level kind of why you decided to offer this picture of Albert's life? Yes, I think I was just thinking, what's the way to try and explain this? Because my book is really for sort of managers and leaders, and I wanted to help them understand that there's more than what meets the eye. You have someone who's not succeeding in the workplace, you're not retaining staff from diverse backgrounds and you might think that they're the problem, but you're not taking the time to think, actually, what else might they have experienced throughout their life that just makes this hard and your cultural awareness might not be there. And I just wanted to give an example of what the awareness could be like for if you had that bit more knowledge, what might you consider differently? Storytelling is powerful. I could have spouted lots of theory, but for me, that wasn't going to connect people with the reality of what it might feel like to be 
someone who is a minority in the workplace when it comes to race and ethnicity and what might fueling their experience. And again, just as I said earlier, they might not know anyone to tell them this story or they might be relying on people in their organizations to tell them the story and people might not want to. They might not want to open up like that. They might not burden of that as well. Because I love the story really sheds light on some of the, the how the experiences shape Albert, in this case, how he views the world and actually his de deteriorating kind of self-belief as a result of all those microaggressions, all those, how people have perceived him in his life and the barriers that have been put in place. It dissolves any kind of ambition and drive that he has. And so what you get isn't his best self at the end of it. What do line managers do if they're seeing the outcome of all of those lived experiences and that cumulative impact, but they don't understand what's behind it. What ideally would happen in that situation? Yeah, I think you need to move beyond what's surface and get to know the person. That ideally is it's what it's all about. It's a human to human experience. Everyone's experience will be different, but to get to know someone, to be open yourself with your own vulnerabilities so that the person can see that you are human too and just start to have conversations just start to get to know the person really understand what's beneath what they do you know i give the example in the story of albert actually having an you know an unwell parent and wanting to look after them to understand culturally that that's a really natural thing to do rather than you know some cultures they won't put their parents in a home they think it's their ability to look after their family members once you understand that then you look at it differently and i think it's about understanding the person understanding culturally where they're coming from what their experience has been and then thinking about yeah what do i need to do to create equitable outcomes for this person so it it does mean you've got to invest time energy and you've got to be open to what's said to you which you might not like because uh, it might not all be positive You've got to be open to the fact that you may have made a mistake yourself in the assumptions you've made or things you've said or, and done. And this willingness to really see the person for, for who they are and what they bring, but also come at it from a really positive place. Difference is to be appreciated and adds value to everyone's life. So rather than trying to squash the difference, ask people to assimilate, think that it's difficult because there's difference. Think about the richness that it brings. It's listening, it's communicating, it's being humble. I definitely think that it's also about openness. And I found in my experience with my coaching particularly, that there are some quite senior leaders who have quite diverse backgrounds that you wouldn't expect, have had experiences that you wouldn't expect, and they're not willing to be vulnerable to let people in their organization know. It might be I had a work class upbringing. It might be I had a parent with mental health issues. So when they're not open, it doesn't role model that openness for their staff. Yes. I also touch upon that, you know, in organizations beyond discomfort is when all leaders feel able to share their stories, role model through vulnerability, through that humility and asking questions and being open but also being open to receive as well. That's a special type of organization where you've got the majority of leaders leading in that way. 
Speaking of my book, and as we are coming to the end of our conversation, I'm asking this to all my guests <coughs> in this season. What has been the most uncomfortable thing that you've had to manage in yourself or address as an inclusive leader? How did you navigate the discomfort of recognising something in yourself in order to be a more inclusive leader? Right. It's a really interesting question. Yeah, so I think that I'm having to rewire my brain around pronouns. I see someone and I automatically assume their gender and their pronouns. And I really want to, I hear what their pronouns are, if they're different to what my brain has told me they should be. Sometimes I make mistakes around that and I'm really working hard on it because I know it's hurtful when I do that. And I, I will apologize. I will accept my mistake. But I think that's probably one of the areas where I'm just, I really need to, you know, work on these ruts and grooves in my brain that could keep fast tracking me to the wrong place. And I don't want to hurt people. And, and sometimes I say it and then someone will have to say, oh, you know, they, and I, I think, oh gosh, I didn't even realize I did that. I hear you. It resonates with me as someone who is heterosexual and cisgender. It's a challenge for me to stop my brain exactly as you said from just going on autopilot and just making an assumption and exactly the same and I've experienced it and I felt awful and one of those people who replays a moment over and over again so afterwards it will stay with me where I was like oh my goodness I can't believe you made that mistake you know and maybe as a DEI practitioner I am harsher on myself because I, I feel like I shouldn't be making that kind of mistake but of course I am and we are only human and need to be a little bit more compassionate and kind to ourselves and whilst also trying our best to learn and practice well jenny it has been amazing chatting to you i feel like i only scratched the surface of your book and everything that's in there i genuinely couldn't recommend your book more highly if people wanted to connect with you on social media where can they find you yes linkedin just jenny garrett twitter is Jennifer Garrett and Insta is Coach Jenny Garrett or just uh, go to my website, jennygarrett.global. Excellent. Well, everything that Jenny and I spoke about today is going to be available in the usual place on our show notes page, avenirconsultingservices.com under podcasts. Thank you so much, Jenny, for your time, for sharing your stories and all your advice and insights. And thank you for your book. Thank you for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure and good luck with your book. Thank you. That concludes episode 38 of Why Care. This was a particularly powerful conversation as it illustrates some of the deep systemic inequities in today's society. I believe that if organisations show courage to have the much needed conversation around creating equity, we could move forward at a greater pace. Do let Jenny and I know what you thought of today's show. You can find me on Insta, LinkedIn and X, formerly Twitter, with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu. If you're a Care fan, then you probably have picked up by now that I have written a book. It's called Beyond Discomfort, Why Inclusive Leadership is So Hard and What You Can Do About It. And it's out in March 2024. You can pre-order your copy on Amazon. As always, I really appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with your friends and family. 
Huge thanks to Mauro at Kenji Productions for editing this podcast and Glory Olubori for supporting with the show notes and getting it out there on social media. <laughs>